Well, we come to um, Habakkuk, and as we come, it's not a very encouraging start, is it? Verses 1 to 4. Uh, now, you'll have seen in your groups, Habakkuk is here in real distress and anguish and perplexity. I wonder whether you could feel the anguish which he was feeling at that time in a society uh, characterised by injustice and oppression and violence. And he's calling to God about it, a God whom he knows hates injustice, a God who hates the weak in society being exploited, and yet God is not listening. So that's why he cries out in verse 2, How long, O Lord, must I cry for help, but you do not listen? Or cry to you violence, but you do not save? He's got the unexplained silence of God. And yet, linked very closely to that was the inactivity of God, wasn't it? God is doing nothing. God has left, as it seems. That's what verses 3 and 4 are saying. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. The wicked him in the righteous so that justice is perverted. You see, why do you tolerate wrong? To Habakkuk's perspective, God's doing nothing. And hopefully you've seen that in your groups. You're doing nothing in this society in which I find himself, God, Habakkuk's saying, and I find that just intolerable. He's crying out to God, God, why are you not listening? Why do you do nothing? Now I wonder when in the discussion you had right at the beginning of uh, describing situations in where you feel that kind of uh, anguish and pain and uh, suffering. I wonder whether you can echo some of what Habakkuk's calling here. You know, calling out to God but God doesn't seem to listen. Asking God to do something but he doesn't seem to do anything. But I wonder whether in those situations, in the situation with Habakkuk and the situations which you described at the, at the beginning, could you imagine yourself praising God in those situations? Now, could you imagine saying, even though life is terrible, I will praise you? Now, can you imagine asking the question, given God has allowed this hour, how should I live? Now, the discussions you had at the beginning... Could you imagine praising God in those situations? Rejoicing in God? Well, that's where Habakkuk gets to. Maybe you heard it as we read. In chapters 1 and 2 of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is questioning God. He's complaining to God. He can't understand that he's bringing that to God, almost accusing God. And God answers him twice. And then in chapter 3, the form of the book changes. It's no longer this question and answer. It's Habakkuk speaking in a psalm to God, a prayer, um, a song to God. And he sums up the the kind of whole movement of the book in in verse 17 of chapter 3. If we just flick on there just now. Do you see what he says there in 3.17? Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. You see, by the end of the book, Habakkuk's perspective has changed. He can face life and rejoice in God. 
But notice that when it is that he says he is going to rejoice and be joyful in God. You see verse 17. When when is he going to do this rejoicing and this praising? It's when the fig tree does not bud. There are no grapes on the vine. Though the olive crop fails and the the fields produce no food. Though there's no, no livestock around. There's no cattle and there's no sheep. It's a lean time. A time of famine. A time when everything is taken away. Habakkuk is saying even in that time. I will praise God. Is that not the time that when everything's taken away, when our wealth and our prosperity is taken away from us, that we actually start to call out, God, why are you doing this? Is that not when we most often ask, why? Why have you taken everything away from me? No, we expect God to give us prosperity and security. So when it's taken away, why is it happening to me? We don't don't expect to face pain or distress. And so when it comes, we say, why have you turned your face away from me, Lord? Yet by the end of the book, Habakkuk's got to the stage when those things happen, he is able to say, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. He knows, verse 19, that God will give him the strength to face those situations. And so what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is trying to chart... Habakkuk's progress. How does he get from somebody in chapter 1 who's calling out, why, why, I don't understand, Lord, you're doing nothing, you're not listening to me, to the end of the book when he's saying, I will praise God in all circumstances. Because it seems so um, uh, counterintuitive to us that he might be doing that. Now how has Habakkuk's perspective changed? And how is our perspective going to need to change over the weeks as we consider life and how we live in life. Now I was listening to um, a sermon that Lindsay Brown did in the 9.15 uh, service a few weeks ago when he couldn't come here but he could go to church. Um, and he was, um, he was saying that this, is, this kind of question is something which undergraduates need to come to grips with. He said this is one of the key things he thinks undergraduates need to come to grips with as they, as they go on. They need to understand this, how to properly worship their God. Not just the version of God we make up in our heads, but to submit our understanding to how God reveals himself to us. Looking at scripture and seeing how, what is the God that we worship like? Specifically, he was saying that you need to understand God's sovereignty and his goodness. And that's something which comes out in Habakkuk. He says you need to understand these as undergraduates so that your life and your testimony as you go through life remains strong and faithful to Christ, even amidst suffering. And so this book, I think, is going to be really important as we uh, study it together. Well, let's get to the, the first answer that Habakkuk receives, his unexpected answer. So Habakkuk's here, he's in distress and perplexity, and he receives an answer from God. Now Habakkuk can't make sense of God who doesn't seem to be working, and so he receives an answer. Now, I think as often is the case, Habakkuk has got, uh, has got some correct information, but then he's made some wrong deductions about it. And you see that clearly in verse 5. And the answer that God gives Habakkuk in the first place is really simple to understand. Habakkuk is saying, why are you doing nothing, God? And God says, look, and you will see that I am doing something. Do you see it in verse 5? Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days. 
you would not believe even if told. Now, I think the NIV's translation may give the impression that God hasn't been doing something, but he's about to do something. Well, that's that's not what's what's being said here. The ESV uh, renders it like this. It says, Look among the nations, see and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Habakkuk says, God, why are you doing nothing? And God comes back to Habakkuk and says, I am doing something. I am working. Habakkuk, you've accused me of not listening, of not doing something, and yet you've not found the answer that I am doing something. I am working. And so he goes on in verses 6 to 11 to show that he's going to uh, judge the wrong in the land by using the Babylonians whom God is raising up. Verse 6, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places, not their own. God was raising up the Babylonians to judge the wickedness and the lawlessness in Judah. That's what you read in 2 Kings 24. The Lord sent Babylonian, Armenian, Moabites and Ammonite raiders against him and sent them to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove from his presence because of the sin of Manasseh and all he had done including the shedding of innocent blood. You see, it's what happened to the people. The Babylonians were raised up by God to judge Judah for their sin. And so Habakkuk is told, I am doing something, Habakkuk. God is doing something. Now I think this is a very, very hard lesson to learn. And as I studied this earlier in the year, I found this very difficult to come to terms with. Because just think, when is God working here? He's always working, he says. But for Habakkuk, it's at the time when it seems like God is doing nothing. The time when God seems silent and not there, and he's saying, that's when I'm working. Now let let the force of that hit you. Think back to the beginning. The times when you call out to God to do something are generally the times when you feel anxiety and perplexity and pain and discomfort and, and your suffering. The times when you think God is doing nothing. For Habakkuk, he was surrounded by the injustice and violence of his, his, his contemporaries. And for you, it may be the time when you, you're applying for job after job in third year and nothing is coming up and you think, God, you're doing nothing. Help me to get on here. Or the perfect relationship that you're in is almost in your grasp and, and, and then it's gone. You think, Lord, that was such a good thing. Why is it gone? Or when a family member dies, when you call out, God, why? Well, what Habakkuk's been told is that those times God is active. That's incredibly difficult, is it not, to, to hold on to and, to and to accept and to understand. And yet that's the first thing that God is saying. I am active. Now listen to these words from um, a book called Broken Down House by Paul Tripp. He's, in a chapter talking about God's sovereignty, he says how often we though want to try and act as if we're in control of everything in life. We're the ones who are in control. And he says another mark of our delusional self-centeredness is that when we encounter an area that we cannot control, 
we tend to see it as out of control. Uh, we need to understand that God's sense of order is very different from ours. What looks like utter confusion to us is actually a discrete piece of divine planning every time. But in the finiteness of our understanding, wisdom and experience, it's hard to see the order. You see, the problem is that we want to be in control. We want to plan what is going to happen in our life and how life should go on. And so we plan for that. And then when something interrupts that, we can't make sense of it. God stopped working. You know, as the guy in Broken Down House goes on to say, is once we have settled on a plan and committed to it, we want our plan to unfold as intended. And so it's hard to see interruptions and obstacles as good or orderly. In fact, they often tempt us to doubt God's sovereignty or his goodness or both. You see, is that not Habakkuk's problem? Is it not our problem? That we think this is how life should go on and we plan it's going to happen like this in these stages and then when that doesn't happen we go, God, why are you not doing anything? And God says, I am doing something. I am doing a work in the, your days. You know, the workings of God sometimes are hard uh, for us to understand. That God was raising up the Babylonians the day of Habakkuk. God's ways of working are not ours. Now, Lindsay Brown, uh, again a few weeks ago at church, uh, told the story of um, a, a conversation he had when he was in Russia. Um, he asked um, a Russian pastor, um, how, many, how many believers are in the country? Uh, and the pastor said, about 800,000 believers. As Lindsay Brown came by, so how many, how many believers was there 20 years ago? And he says, oh, there, were, there was about 80,000 then. And so that sparked Lindsay Brown's interest. Now, how, how did they go from being 80,000 to 800,000 believers in Russia in 20 years? And so the Russian pastor told him a story. He said that during Stalin's time, Stalin forcibly removed Ukrainians and, and made them settle in Russia. They were taken away from their families, from their culture, from everything that they used and settled in a place where they didn't speak the language, they didn't know the culture, they didn't know anything, and they were, they were settled there. For, for decades they had to live there. A place that was not their own. You see, the Russian pastor says that in Ukraine there was a large population of Christians. And so among those who were forcibly moved by Stalin for decades and settled in Russia uh, were Christians. And so when the country opened up and it was uh, easier for the gospel to be proclaimed, these Ukrainian Christians uh, spoke the gospel to others. And as they spoke the gospel, people became Christians and the church grew in the past. And the the reason there's 800,000 Christians now is that those Christians in Ukraine were forcibly moved to Russia. Something that wasn't good for them. And yet you see in God's good planning how a church was born and grown and developed. It must have been hard truly for those Ukrainian Christians in in a place of suffering and distress. I can't imagine what it would have been like to live under Stalin's rule. And yet with the perspective of history you can see God's sovereign hand God's sovereign hand working in that situation, arranging the situation. You see, God, at the time when it seems most unlikely for God to be working, God says, I am working. 
The sovereignty of God is such that he is always working. Now you, ha- you have to understand that, surely, as we, as we see this. No, we think, why God, what are you doing? How can you be working now? God says, I am working. And it's most clearly seen, this principle on the cross. You see, surely the disciples, and as the disciples did do, they, they saw their leader arrested, uh, tried in a mock trial, and killed on a Roman cross. What on earth was going on? Why? I don't understand. Their whole lives were, were shattered. Their dreams and their hopes and their expectations were shattered. They thought Jesus was going to come and, and conquer the Romans and then bring a, a new situation about. That was what they had planned for the situation, but God had planned something much more. Now listen to, to these words for some of the disciples who walked with Jesus on the, on the road to Emmaus. They didn't know Jesus was the one that they were speaking to. And they said this. Now we, we spoke about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, after saying that their whole life has just kind of gone down the pan, it seemed. He said he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But listen to this. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You see what I'm saying? We hoped he was going to redeem Israel, but he's on a, he was on a cross and killed. And what is more, it's the third day since this all took place. They hear the depression conclusion. We hoped that this was going to be God's Messiah, who's going to do all these amazing things, and yet here he is on a cross, dead. But we know, don't we, that the cross, the time when God seemed inactive was when God was most active. The place where our salvation was bought and where we can come now and have forgiveness of sins and without which we would be nothing. The cross is the place that we are going to come and try and draw people to this week and events week, is it not, as Sheffield's to you, tries to present people with Christ crucified. The time when God seemed to do nothing is the time when he brought salvation for all people. And when Paul was preaching to some uh, Jews in Acts 13, he quotes this passage in Habakkuk and encourages the Jews to believe what he was preaching, to believe in Jesus. And he uses these words almost as a warning that they would not believe it if you were told. He says this, Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. You see, the cross of the Lord Jesus was amazing. It seemed as if God was absent and yet God was right there working salvation for us. It was incredible. But you see, it's not as if God has stopped working since the cross. It wasn't that God wasn't working in Habakkuk's day. He was. And God is still working in our days. And even if we can't see how God is working, even if we look at our lives and think, God, why are you doing nothing Habakkuk is calling us to come and to trust God. And the God is saying, I know you find life hard to fathom. I know that you can't see how all this is working out for good. But will you please trust me this morning? It's like sometimes when I ask my children to do something, I say, can you do this? Um, now I know when asking that, I could give them reasons why I'm asking them to do it, but oftentimes they won't understand and you need to say to them, will you please trust your dad? I want 
something which is good for you. I know you can't grasp why I'm asking you to do this at this time, but it's for your good. Please trust me. Well, that's what God's calling us to this morning. I know you can't see why this is happening like this at this time, but will you please trust me? Will you trust that I am doing something? Or maybe it's for you, you might not be suffering this morning, but you've got, you've got great plans in your head for what's going to happen in the future and where your life is going. And God's saying, will you please hold those plans loosely in your hands? Yeah, it's good to plan. I'm glad you've made some plans. Hold them loosely in your hands so that if I change them, you can cope. You can trust me in that. You see, I'm working. And I will continue to work. And so God says, my child, will you trust me? Trust me. Trust me as you live this life. Because I am working and I am sovereign and I am in control of all things. Before you discuss uh, some more in your groups, let's um, pray together. Father God, we pray that you would help us to trust you. To trust in your sovereignty, knowing that you are a God who is in control and always has been in control and always will be in control. And even though we can't see how things are working out, to trust that you can and that you are working things out. And so, Father, in the midst of great suffering and trials that will come in the future, we might be able to trust you hold tightly to you even though we can't understand and we don't know. And so Father, help us this morning to um, just ground these things deep in our hearts. Help us to work out how we can uh, support each other and help each other to learn these lessons. And help us uh, to think about how we might be able to explain this to others so that they too might come to see that you are in control and submit their lives to you and find forgiveness in you. And Father, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's some more questions for you to uh, think that through in your groups.